This one's a little bit different because all the way back from the beginning of the class, even before I got here in June, we've been kind of building up from some ideas and truth. And that's, that's actually how different people learn two different, most people learn two different ways. One is you learn two plus two, and then you learn what value four means. Other people start learning because they have a sense that numbers mean something, but they don't know how to attach any nuts and bolts to it. Oh, two and two come together and make that thing that feels like four or in some people's heads even looks like four. An orange shape is what instantly pops up in their head. So people learn two different ways. Herman and I learn completely differently from each other. I learn from the experience side and then start laying in the things around it. He starts with the concepts and from what wells up within him is the experience of it. However, if you have one without the other, you have an incomplete situation. And that's why he asked me to come in here. I have to tell you, you know, so I'm looking at my old Sunday school teacher. I'm in my old classroom and all of this stuff. And oh, two old Sunday school teachers. Uh, prior Sunday school teachers. Um, and I've never told this story at length at this church. And I've never really put it together like this. I'm going to try not to ramble. Um, I'm also going to tell you some of this, you will be incredulous. Um, and I'm not going to sit here the whole hour and say, look, I know you might not believe this. Okay. I am open to the fact that some of this didn't happen, except that I know that it did. Okay. So I grew up at Grace Community Church, which is ultra Pentecostal, right? They run around with all the, <laughs> the and the banners and the whole thing. I know for sure Guy Davidson was not against it because one lady stood up years and years ago and she started, um, yelling out in tongues. I don't even know if you're in that service. And he stopped the room and he says, okay, is there an interpreter in the room? Nobody stood up and he says, well, we're going to need to put that aside for now. So, you know, I know there was an openness to the fact that the Holy Spirit moves, but it was not something we just did on a daily basis here. Anyway, so as we start, that's my caveat. Um, the other caveat is this, um, any of you who know the story of my blowing out with alcohol and all of this stuff in the past know that I have hurt, and hurt many of you. I do not have one ounce of shame because I know that I know that I know that I'm forgiven. And I'll reference a uh, blog entry about Herman and Lori one day, but... Um, to know that you've nuked a family and a business and um, a career and all of that is a burden. Paul carries that around in Acts. You can see it. He's, he's, like, he's like the apostle of grace. And he has this thing. He says, you know, I, I killed these people. You know. So as I do this, there's no flippancy here. <laughs> you know, if somebody was in the room, you know, what are you, what are you talking about all this joy and everything? And because some of the people in the room were directly affected. I think of even like Aaron McCloskey and things like that. You know, we were friends. And Lori and her and I were, were just friends. And here's Sue, and she's this wonderful person. And, and I blew it up. So know that I'm not taking that lightly. And I wish this cord was longer. Anybody ever heard of Gene Edwards? Oh, it's interesting. Okay, so he wrote a bunch of books, Prisoner in the Third Cell, um... He does a, a church movement. He's written books about uh, theology and stuff like that, more in the 80s, but sold a couple million books. And I just, I was having all these experiences, all these crazy things happening. I grew up at uh, Arizona Bible College in, you know, a dispensational viewpoint, which is, you know, the Holy Spirit is acting through scripture and maybe through prompting and prayer, but all these giftings are gone and all of that. And I'm having all this weird stuff happen. So I actually started writing out to some pretty heavyweight theologians and stuff saying what's going on. It was interesting that every answer I got from people that were biblical Christians were saying, be open to this. See what's happening. So I wrote to him and I said, hey, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm free. I, I'm, I, I, I've never drank again. I don't know what's going on. And he wrote back to me and he said, my dear brother, laying aside the possibility that you are enjoying the wonders 
of having gone stark raving mad, I would surmise that you have come to understand that you are truly and utterly one with Christ. One thing is certain, whichever the case may be, do not attempt to understand. Oneness with the Lord is inexplicable. And further, don't look for a cure. A delighted brother, Gene Edwards. It's a beautiful note. Because I was I was actually, for about a year, even before I went over to Asia, I was a little off track here. I'm like, okay, this is weird. I'm seeing things. I'm having visions. I'm having dreams. I'm going back to the scripture. And I go, huh. it's everything's lining up with scripture. I can send you this, by the way, too, if you need it. Um, one of my favorite movies, and I teach a course in truth in pop culture, is The Matrix, especially the first one. Um, these guys are far from Christians, but they explored some very important themes about existence, metaphysics, epistemology, which is truth. And um, Neo, is, if you've ever seen the movie, he's... He doesn't know it, but he's plugged into this computer module. It's like a, a millions of people are plugged into it as an energy source. They get him out, and they're bringing him into the real world. And in the movie, he's being transitioned on a ship called the Nebuchadnezzar. He awakes on a phys physical table one day, and he opens his eyes and moans as Morpheus, his savior, is really kind of like John the Baptist in this movie and leans over the table, and Neo groans, why do my eyes hurt? And Morpheus says, because you've never used them. And then there's this beautiful line at the beginning of the whole trilogy. He says, rest, Neo. The answers are coming. And uh, so for 35 years, I did the Grow Up or Grace Community Church. I went off to Ravencrest. I even listened to Ian Thomas on the Exchange Life and uh, uh, Bible College, off to Germany doing missionary work. And I never opened my eyes. I never had the eyes to see or the ears to hear. And it was, it was something that was really weird. Let me, let me just take you through this piece real quick here. If you got the paper or you want one. Um, so. this, I, wrote, I had this blog, and I don't know, it's just this place where I write stuff, and but now it kind of goes out to about 100 countries and get a couple thousand people a month maybe sometimes to go look at it. And sometimes I get a note, and people say, wow, that was great. I'm really encouraged. This was my first entry. <sighs> my life is totally his. Oh, by the way, let me back up. I'd just gone to America's Keswick, this recovery place, which is just a Bible conference center on the East Coast. Came out of the Keswick movement in uh, England, where you get Spurgeon out of that, and you get Oswald Chambers out of that, and all that. Just, just a nice Bible conference grounds. Um, not, not any particular religious or, excuse me, denominational flavor, but if you, if you had it, it feel like Grace Community Church and the worship services, things like that. Just kind of like. 20 years ago, the old lady on the organ <laughs> kind of thing. All right. My life is totally is his. All I am and all I have and all I will ever be, all I will ever have are his, absolutely, unconditionally, now and forever. And I said that on October 19th. I looked down at my old Bible, which I still have next to me, the one that I had been marking up up until about the 90s, and then the notes start to fall off and late 90s, and I put my hand on the Bible, and if you're offended, I'm sorry. I said, oh, F this. I'd been drinking, my life had fallen apart and everything, and I said, God, just do whatever you got to do, and something in me snapped. I was still in Phoenix right before I got to Keswick, but it was October. I can still see it. I'm sitting in this room. It was the most unreligious-sounding prayer and then I even said out loud, kill me if you have to, but fix me. I can't keep going. And you know the passage from Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I suddenly realized, in light of what God's done for me, the only reasonable thing for me to do is to give it back to him. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And in exchange for this, he has, by his grace, given this writer a life of abundance that he never knew possible. I'm experiencing the kingdom life that he can only give of his, which is out of Romans here. It says it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But it started with this entry. Hello from the Pinelands of New Jersey. So here's the big disclaimer. Okay, I'm living proof that intelligence has little, if anything, to do with wisdom. So reading, many will be tempted to shake their heads and say, Duh, McCullough, didn't you go to Sunday school as a child? You write like this is the first time you've heard of this stuff. And I said, point well taken. Pardon my density, but the last couple of months may just be my initiation into the normal Christian life. Go read that by um, Watchman Nee. Very good book, Romans 5 through 8. Please indulge my immaturity and take what you can from the following words. And this is, this is where I'm, we're talking about, okay, so you have good theology, but now what can it mean in our existence? Because if we don't know what it means, if we don't know why we're even doing this, if it's just some philosophy of life, uh, it's probably not the way to go. C.S. Lewis a couple times says, just chuck it and go do something else. It's like a bright, cold, crispy, cloudless, silent autumn morning in my mind. I do not remember ever in my life ten contiguous days of peace, calm, and freedom from anxiety. Never. But it's just happened. This reprieve is one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. I'll get to that in a little bit. How did it happen? God did it. That's it. Oh, wait, there's just one more thing. I gave him everything, as in every single aspect of my life, completely, absolutely, totally, and abandoned to his keeping. Yeah, now that's it. And I joke down here that people start laughing at me because when I first wrote the blog entry, I thought every Christian knew it. And I understand later that maybe less understood it than I thought. Go to the second page. I just kind of laid down this dichotomy, me at first, me. But God says, just believe. I said, but I'm afraid. He says, fear not. It won't last. I'm unchanging. God, I've screwed up so bad. I knew before you did, and I paid to pay, died to pay for your sin. I don't have a job. I'll provide. People hate me, so I love you. I will fail. Yeah, but I don't. I'm so alone. Not ever again. Oh, that's so true. I don't know how to love. I'll love through you. Yeah, but are you done yet, Mac? <laughs> I'd like to get the work in your life. You've just given me everything, so I'm assuming these questions and doubts are merely momentum from the past 36 years. Would you like me to handle all of those issues for you from now on? Hint, say yes, Mac. Yes, Mac. No, just yes. The Lord says to me, it's okay. Are you ready? And I said yes. And he said, excellent. Hold on tight. Good. Here we go. And what? <laughs> I'm going to try to not go to 1045. I'm going to try to turn this over to some questions in a little bit. But I'm going to tell you about some stuff that you just go, yeah, right. Or you go, wow, God's amazing. That's my hope. Not that I've got some crazy story, but that God can work in people's lives in some amazing way. So, is this emotion? No. It's, it's not about that. This is about joy. And joy is a separate thing from emotion. It's, joy, is, I've written it down, is the diamond hard strength a being can have when in relationship proper relationship with God. By the way, does anybody know the first written prayer of Jesus after his crucifixion? Peter and Paul both mention it in the book of Acts. I didn't see it until Daryl Delusay said, yeah, you got it right. Is it where he says that he prays for those that don't yet know 
That's before he's, that's the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. It's beautiful. One of the most important passages of scripture in all of history. It's Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is the resurrection psalm. Both Peter and Paul reference it as proof of the resurrection. And he's, he's in the grave, and you can see it. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And, he, and he, see, he goes through this passage. You can tell he's in a different place. It's David, but it's Jesus. Okay? And he goes through this, and it says, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption in Sheol. You get to Psalm 16 11, it says, And as it, it appears, as Jesus, this is like as Jesus is walking out, with, he's yanked the keys of death off the wall. He's smashed death's head. He's kicked death's butt. And here's his prayer. Father, in your presence is the fullness of joy. Or sorry, you will show me the pathways of life. You're showing me the way back out. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The first thing Jesus does after he kicks butt in battle is he says, hey, Dad, I'm coming home. Let's party. Don't downplay that. I'm not talking emotion. Not, oh, let's have a couple beers. This is... I love it how uh, pastor up front sometimes he's like, yeah, that's what Jesus is doing. He's a warrior mighty to save. Now, you can check me on this, but this is the only, by the way, this is the only prophecy in the Old Testament that is validated by two apostles, if I understand correctly. And I didn't get it until I read it later. I'm like, this is Jesus praying in the, in the, in the grave and coming out. Psalm 16. Well, that's just one verse of it. Read the whole thing and you'll see where he's at. But Google, where did Paul reference? I think it's in Acts 2. I didn't look it up. Okay, so I'm rambling a little bit, but I love this four minutes from Robbie Zacharias where he puts the joy side onto Our Christianity. Here we go. Have you ever wondered what you would do to frighten Lazarus after he'd been raised from the dead? And what would you do to threaten him? Lazarus, I'm gonna kill you? <laughs> Caligula said, I'm gonna kill you. He says, ha ha ha. And he says, hi, I'm going to kill you as I'm getting all the rest He doubles over an uncontrollable laughter, comes up for air and says, Caligula, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. How do you frighten somebody who's already been there and knows the one who's going to let him out? But just think of stepping on shore and finding it's heaven. Of touching a hand and finding it God's hand, of breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory and finding it home. Ladies and gentlemen, your hope and mind in Christ is that one day you will be with God. We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has spoken of the rise and fall of great ones that ever flowed. I heard a crazy cracked Austrian announce to the world yesterday signed the German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown saying he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I have seen America more wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together. So that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remember the name infamy? 
started as a forbidden name in the regime he helped and dominate for some three decades. America's hunted by fears of running out of the precious clues that keeps some little ways roaring and the small settling. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. Behind the debris of the fallings of our sullen supermen and imperial diplomatists lies the gigantic figure of one person because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom, mankind may still survive in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor. Peter looks at him and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The apostle Paul saw at that time in Acts chapter 9 says, What shall you have me to do with the Lord? Thomas raised his hand and touched his side and said, Hey, my Lord and my God, how kratos me, how kratos me, the Lord of me, the God of me. When Pilate looked at him and said, I'm not the Christ, he said, You have said it. When the priest looked at him and said, I am the Son of God, he said, You're right in saying that I am the Son of God. And in John chapter 14, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Lord, where are you going? If we don't know where you're going, how can we find the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except to me. Show us the Father, Lord. If you see me, you see the Father. Philip, have you been with me so long? And you don't know that when you see me, you see the Father. I am my Father, Allah. And he who believes in me, greater things than he shall be. show that to some kids when we do an epistemology unit in truth. But the, the point is, we have to understand something at the beginning of what he talks about. If we don't read Revelation 21 and 22, we're missing it. To actually come around into a place and to have this king of the universe in the most lavish and beautiful clothing and I, I just, I get the picture, if you ever had that, that hug with the grandfather with the beautiful masculine smell that he had or something, an uncle or some powerful, strong man that, that embraced you in a good and beautiful way. And then he, he does this, but he's going, as he, as we're, we're falling into the song, I can only imagine, right, falling to our knees or getting up or dancing or whatever, he pulls us in and he puts us at just right there and in your eyes, the king of the universe is going to look. He's going to say, it's so good to see you, buddy. This is true. This is the gospel. There's, there is a reason for this. It's not like we're just going to go to some Disneyland and sit around and eat snacks. Why do you think Satan wants to show uh, the world that heaven is us floating on a cloud playing a harp? Are you kidding me? One morning, Jesus says, hey, come with me. We're gonna, I want to show you how we do stars. It's really cool. You want to see it? I do it a lot because it's so much fun. <laughs> no, really. I, we have to get that. We have to get that there's an end to this. Imagine waking up and finding that you're home and you listen to this cool breeze. The, the kingdom is, is described, this cool, beautiful breeze and bright sunlight. And Sometimes I, I see this flag waving on a pole and the, the hardware of the flag clanking against this silver pole that hundreds of meters in the air, it's the flag of the kingdom flying. And this big city they talk about in Revelation, that's just the capital city. That's just home base. Don't miss that. Some people think, oh, we have to live in this cube, this 1,500-mile cube? Uh-uh, 12 gates all open. This is where you come back and get ready for the next adventure in a city that's bigger than we can even begin to comprehend. That's home base. So, don't miss that part. It's way more than a philosophy. No. Uh, by the way, this is a delicious irony. I, I love how God does things, too. See, you know, all of these kings falling away and all of this stuff. This is that obelisk in St. Peter's Square. If you don't know the story, this was built by some pharaoh in Egypt. And then I think it was, which one? It was August. Yeah, Emperor Augustus went down, beat up on the... Uh, Egyptians 
and took their obelisk. And they put it somewhere in Rome. And then Nero took it over to this area in Rome. And that obelisk oversaw the slaughter of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Christians. I find it a delicious irony that the church didn't have Roman Catholic, didn't have Greek Orthodox, didn't have Protestant. The church, when they got this, put it right in the center of one of their headquarters. Oh, yeah? Try to kill us off. We're still here 2,000 years later. That's why it's there, by the way. It's kind of a giant middle finger back to the, to the, <laughs> to the evil empires of the world. But Jesus can do the same thing in our life. He comes in. We are trying to destroy everything. We're trying to fly, you know, break everything down. And, and we, it, we're disobeying. We're sinning and all of that. And that's what I was doing. But he had the same victory in my life. One quote here. Again, I can send you this later. Um, Brandon Manning, I like reading a lot of his stuff. The gospel is absurd. And the life of Jesus is meaningless. Unless we believe that he lived died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make us a brand new creation. Not to make a people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women, who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within, who would live in ever greater fidelity to the omnipresent Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ into the center of that flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian. Do we need good theology? Absolutely. Should we in the seminaries and stuff be talking about doctrine? You bet. I love that Stuttgart has this whole couple hundred years thing where they're making sure they have the very best Greek text. All of that's important. This is what, it enables this, a fiery, extravagant relationship with God. So let me just kind of quickly go through this, about 12 or 14 minutes. This picture actually really hits it for me. What, each of us believe a lie, and I'm going to give you a moment, in a moment, to think through this. From my childhood, I had this incredible fear of eternity. And what it was, was I was, I kept thinking about living forever, like tick, tock, tick, tock. And what would happen in, in some psychological sense is that it, the, the throat of eternity would narrow. And I think we'd be out there somewhere and even God would run out of things to do. And then you're stuck. And then there's no night. There's no, well, you can't sleep. You know, the devil's got me going. He's got on one tiny little truth. And I had some panic attacks. I remember telling some people, I said, I wouldn't wish this on Hitler. I wouldn't wish this on Pol Pot. It was, they were terrible. And I would get, I got up out of a Bible college class one time up at ACB and ran out screaming in terror. It was terrible. And it's part of what drag, drove some of my drinking, but it was a misconception. So I like you to just take a minute. Just stop, and however you do it, think through in your own life, is there something that you've been listening to, to a lie that you've been listening to in your own life? Just take 30 seconds. Today's the day to throw that lie away if you know it's a lie, not hold on to it. Um, I was, I had some abuse. Love my dad. He's still here. Support him, and he's gotten a lot better. There were some tough things that happened in me, my growing up. My mom tells her own story publicly of her own drinking and things like that. And um, as I get into working at Intel and stuff in the early '90s, depression and self-medication and obedience 
led to all of those things that Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? Um, and I get down through a number of years, and uh, I, th I think the seminal moment, you can't quite see this here because I didn't really want to show it, is you know the story. Um, my father molested my daughter and did it repeatedly, and I had to confront him, and I had to figure out how to both forgive him and protect my daughter, which we've done. I've lived with him twice since then, actually three times. We get along good. We're friends now. But it took a long time, and in the middle of it, I tell you what, the pain that was in that and everything, I just, that's where I blew out. I, about 2000, I was drinking, and then they were putting me on these tranquilizers and stuff, which worked great while you were on them, so you had to take more and more of that, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty predictable. But it was weird all the way through this. I, I didn't often, like, hear the voice of God, but I was really in the middle of it. And one time, um, I heard Jesus say this. He said, at the time, Scotty, um, you and I can sit down and talk about this one day, as long as you want. And it was this little, like, thread of a, a lifeline that was just keeping me from completely going out. And I even told Carrie Davidson, a good friend of mine, oldest friend of mine, if I, if I didn't think I was going to go to hell, I was going to commit suicide. But, but this is what that felt like, because that's what Jesus is like, right? Peace, strength, quiet. But I chose that path instead. Um, those of you that know Sue, she gets to the end of it, and she said, look, um, you got to go. And uh, I think she did it knowing I was either going to die or get better. And it was the only thing she could do. The tough love was to say, you got to go. And that Sue is your ex-wife? Sorry, yeah, I'm looking at some people because they know her. Sue is my ex-wife um, with whom we had our first four kids. Uh, she went through a lot with this, but her thing was to say, look, you got to go. And then I went out up in Greeley, Colorado, and uh, for about a year and a half, I was really in trouble. I was in and out of jail. I was drinking hard. I was drinking so hard that people had to, sh you know, ambulances were showing up, taking me to rehab. I'd get up, get out of rehab and go drinking again. It was amazing. And I finally get this four-month stint in jail where I can get cleaned up a little bit. And um, if anybody knows David Brewer. Dave Brewer? Yeah. Yeah, great guy. We stayed with him last summer. Um, he wrote to my mom and says, I know about this place called America's Keswick. It's the oldest rehab in the country, and it's it's just Christian-based. It's not this big program. It's more like this, hey, why don't you work on your relationship with God thing. But my breaking moment was that um, I said, okay, I get out of jail. This is about eight years ago. And my parents said, come stay at our house, and we'll get you to Keswick. And I get home, and I have a bleeding ulcer, and I didn't know it. I'd been drinking so hard that I actually gave myself a bleeding ulcer. We go up to Payson, up to uh, Forest Lakes, which is outside of Payson. And I'm in um, Jane and Bruce Cummins' cabin with just an afternoon, like, hey, let's go out for the weekend and take a nap. And I woke up, and I've had a few close calls in my life, but I was dying. I knew it. And I didn't know how I knew it, but I knew it. It was this very clear thing. It's like, you're dying. And I get up, and I ask my mom to help me. And thankfully, there's this little fire station right there, and they immediately get me on oxygen and an IV and stuff and get me to the hospital and pace. And sure enough, I was four units of blood low or something like that. It was really bad. Um, and that got healed up. But I think that was like the bottom of it. And I get to then, all right, that gets healed up. month and a half later, I get to America's Keswick. But I get to America's Keswick about five days after that October 19th thing on your paper where I just said, God, okay, just do whatever you got to do. And I can't quite explain it, and this is where some of the mystical stuff and the name change comes up, is I get to America's Keswick, and this actually is the place, um, and it felt like going home at Christmas. Just, it's like, hey, welcome, you know? All, and you felt just 
the absence of spiritual turbulence. And it turns out there's this prayer team that for 115 years, three or 400 people at a time are praying for this place. And so it's just protected. And people who come in and want to get well tend to do that. Where is it at? Um, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, where is it? I can't remember. Whiting, New Jersey. And so here I am. I'm going through some stuff. And this is, this is where it actually got pretty weird. All of a sudden, I'm having these 10 or 15 days of real peace and everything. And scripture is starting to, all my 35 years of being a missionary and being somebody who knows how to teach the Bible, all of a sudden I'm seeing this is about relationship with God, joy in his presence, strength, and all of that. And I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. But then I'm sitting in, the, the chapel looks a little bit like this. Again, it's just an old lady playing the piano. And it's not even the church service yet. It's 726 at night. And I'm looking at the pamphlet, you know, like hymn number one, sermon, offertory, right? And all of a sudden, whoosh, I'm standing up at the front of the church. And a shadowy figure like that comes out from behind the podium with this big black dagger. And just pounds it into my chest. This is the stuff where you're going to go. Okay, i got to leave. <laughs> I'm okay with that. And I fall to the ground in this moment, in this whatever it is. I guess you would call it a vision. And instantly I'm back in my chair. But my heart rate's at like 140, and it's only like 15 seconds later. Anybody see this? And I can't tell you what was going on, but everything was different. The room was different. What I heard was different. Everything. And not once have I picked up a drink since then. I, okay. I go out to the end of the church service. He's preaching John 6 about, you know, our faith needs to be everything about Jesus. We need to gnaw on the word of God. Jesus is everything. And the disciples are saying, these are hard sayings. It's just this thing on faith. And I go up to him at the end. He's this rough New Jersey, Puerto Rican guy. I said, Pastor Roman. And it only hit me for the first time in my life that his name is Roman. (laughs) And he's in a hurry. But he looks over his glass. He's, what? Like, he's from New Jersey. They talk like this. (laughs) What? And I said, oh. and I'm so nervous. I said, at least for me, I feel like you just preached at a funeral. It's the weirdest thing to come out of my mouth. It was so weird. Okay, I get it. And he looks over and he goes like this. And he walks away. Gets me in a, we're going on an errand a few days later in his car. And I said, what did you mean? He said, Keswick is like an elephant graveyard. People come here to die. They just don't know it. I was slain in the spirit. Are we allowed to say that here? (laughs) Sitting next to a guy a few days later. He's like, you're hot. There's heat coming off of you. I was so happy. I mean, it was this ebullient, huge joy churning inside of me. But I'm still hurting on the inside. And I get to this dining room. It's actually about this size. I've only got about seven minutes left. I get to a dining room about this size, and the guys are on Saturday night. Some guys got the guitar, and, you know, we're singing Kumbaya, or not really Kumbaya, but, you know, little worship songs and things like that. And all of a sudden, I'm basically, like, pulled out of my seat and down on my face on the floor. You talk about embarrassing. These are all the guys I'm in rehab with. There are a couple of guys were laughing across the room. Because it wasn't that kind of meeting. <laughs> a friend of mine, a Chinese artist, Guopeng, um, painted this. And I went up to him late. He gave me a copy of it. And I went up to him and I said, you've seen it. And he gets this big smile on his face. I'm down on the ground and it's it's just, you know, it's Saturday night singing. And all of a sudden, I'm, I see this beautiful red and yellow and purple, glorious light. And I realize what it is is that it's the refraction of some light 
off of a jewel of like a robe. Like bright light is coming through this jewel and it's just the light coming on. And it's this liquid, beautiful light. And then I, you know, he finished the healing. They took his hand and I actually felt a hand pass through my heart and massage it as it went through. And I got up and I'm like, oh my goodness, is this what it's like to be alive? <laughs> he healed me. Really incredible. So here I have all these years of how the Bible is supposed to work, and now I'm seeing how it fits. It's about presence with God. It's about relationship with God. It's about dwelling with Him, learning how to have joy, learning how to share that love, love God and love people. And that started, I went on, for some reason, he called me to this 40-day fast. Any of you who have fasted know that that can be pretty amazing. Um, and uh, it was crazy because I worked in a kitchen and we were making pizza and cheese sandwiches, which were, you know, soup and sandwich day. That was my favorite food ever. And, but I was okay. And it was really, truly 40-day fast. There were a couple times I had to eat and sometimes I was taking some protein powder. But basically that. And it was really amazing. And about 30 days into it, I'm praying. Some of the guys, we'd have these like youth or just uh, support group meetings. We pray afterwards. Again, not Pentecostal, just guys praying about getting their life back together. And all of a sudden, out of me comes this word, Makala. I'm like, that was weird. It was definitely not me. So I, I wrote it, keeping notes. We didn't have computers because they didn't want us addicts online, right, looking at bad stuff. And uh, so I wrote it down and put it in my stack of notes. It, but instantly after that, I got this sense like my name had changed or something. And so I went back from Scotty to Scott because Scotty was showing this kind of rebelliousness in my life. And it wasn't enough. I get all the way back home. I get to... Um, Arizona, I do get a job. I go to work for Google. It's kind of a cool job. And there's this gal from Hawaii. She's like the, the supervisor in the department. And finally, she's bugging me. She's bugging me. I write this down, M-A-K-A-L-A. And I said, do you have any idea what this is? She was a believer. She said, yeah, it's a Hawaiian name. It's like Michael. I'm like, huh, Interesting. And then I went to look it up. I go to Google, and I just type in M-A-K-A-L-A. -A -A. And I work for Google, so I'm like, let's see what happens. First thing that comes up is a ukulele company in Hawaii. There's a guy that makes Makala ukuleles. Great. Pretty famous company. I'm like, okay, now I'm stupid. Then the second one was a meaning of names sheet or page. Makala is Hawaiian. It means to loosen, to set at liberty, to remit, to be forgiven, pardoned, condoned, absolved, excused, to cancel or refrain from inflicting or enforcing a punishment, to pardon or to forgive. And it also means myrtle, which are the leaves used in victory wreaths. Victory I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the, people change their name in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul got his name changed, sort of, but uh, <laughs> and I actually heard the Holy Spirit say to me, "Welcome to your new life, Mac." Basically, oh, you're kidding me. So I call my ex-wife and I talk to my sons. And Brianne still thinks I'm a crazy idiot for doing it, <laughs> and I look at it, and um, so I took that name. But as before I did that, I went out and studied, and I found out there were many centuries of the church that it was very normal for a person when they fully committed their life to God. You can do it now, the baptismal name or the chrismal name for, um, like, people becoming bishops or priests or bishops or whatever in, like, the Greek Orthodox. They take a new name. And um, so it wasn't out of line with Christian history, but it was not something that happened in the West. What's that? Not too much. So Macaulay set free. I took Barnabas as the middle, which is to be an encourager, and doulos means slave or servant of God.
then you think, oh, that's a nice one-time off, one-off thing. Isn't that great? I get up back into the mountains. It's interesting. He took me back to exactly the same place. And one morning, he woke me up. And I now understand what, what it says in the scripture where it says you're driven into the wilderness. I get up. I pack a little backpack with some stuff, some coconut water, and my Kindle, and a couple of things. And I'm pushed out onto the Mogollon Rim. I'm actually, I'm not kidding. I'm feeling my feet go like, you know, like this. Not robotic, but I mean, just impelled. And I get out there as I'm going out, and all of a sudden, I'm in church. I'm like, wow. And I put down my bag, and I go out, and there's this, I'll, I'll finish with this. There's this flat, round stone. It's perfect. Here's a few of them. You guys have been on the rim. You know what I'm talking about, those flat sandstone areas. But this one was perfect. And I get out there, and I had taken my former ring and, a, and a, another thing that represented my old life, and I threw it out over the edge. A few hundred bucks worth of gold, but it's okay. And I sat down, and I just wept, and I wept, and I wept. And I wept. I missed my kids. I, I missed my old life. I hadn't met this beautiful woman yet. I'm just, just weeping. And he met me. I didn't see him personally, visually. But God was there. And he wept with me. And I just, just a couple of hours. In fact, I had my shirt off and my shoes off and everything. I got burned in the sun up there. And... Then he said, look, I'll tell your kids every day that you love them. You need to go do what I want you to do now. I said, okay. And I got up and I turned around. And the freakiest thing was, I swear this is true. Everything was different. It's not right. It's not where I was. I'm pretty good with directions. You can ask my wife. I just turn around and pick up my bag. It's gone. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And I heard him say it out loud, go home. I didn't even have my glasses. I had to work my way. I'm panicking almost as I, I can't even find my way. And I finally find my way. And I'm coming in, no, no shirt and all of this stuff. And this guy, well, I guess I found my T-shirt because it was next to me on the, on the rock. But, you know, no glasses and looking like this. And the guy gives me some water. I get to the ranger station and I report it. And they're looking at me like, okay, you're freaky. It was gone, and nobody believed me, except Cindy, my sister. They found the bag sometime later. Everything was in it. It was all sealed up, and the, the thing that was interesting is none of the electronics worked. They were all scrambled. The, the MP3 player just was The Kindle had an error code that nobody had ever even seen. Oh, you just lost it out in the forest. Well, maybe. Or God said, look, you need to leave everything on this mountain. And follow me, Romans chapter 12. So, there's thousands more things here. But, he took me to Jamaica, told me I was going to meet a kid. He keeps showing me this road. And then he told me about this Melinda. I've been praying that I wanted to meet somebody. And he said, you will most surely meet her, and her name is Sarah. Well, her name's not Sarah, but her name means princess. And God brought us together. We can tell you that story in the future, but God brought us together without any connections at all across the world. And both of us had the same thing of like we were to meet each other. So the final part is that in giving your life over, he says, I got something for you to do. Um, he sent me to Asia. Worked in Indonesia with ACSI and some schools. We're pretty sure a couple hundred kids are in the kingdom because of that. Got to China, discipled a bunch of people, helped with a beautiful brown boy that, that I've adopted into my family, Melinda's son, Sam, etc. Um, and what's come out of this craziness of my life has been this ability to go and share the gospel with others. And I'll close with this. I found, oh, I can't even see it, but I'll read it to you. Remember, it started with this deep fear of eternity. What I finally realized is John 17, as was answered here, this is eternal life, that you know God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
that time is inside of God. Time is a subset of eternity. God's not limited by time. We're not going to be ticking on the clock. We're going to be 11, 12, 13 dimensional beings. You kidding me? Time's just this little thing down here. And it turns out that a lot of poets have found this. John Milton said this. Fly envious time till you run out the race. Call on the lazy leaden stepping hours. Whose speed is but the heavy plummet's pace. And glut thyself with what thy womb devours. Which is no more than what is false and vain. And merely mortal dross. So little is our loss. And so little is thy gain, O time. When each thing bad thou hast entombed. Evil gets consumed. And at last of all thy greedy self consumed. Then long eternity shall greet our bliss with an individual kiss. And joy shall overtake us as a flood. When everything that is sincerely good and perfectly divine. With truth and peace and love shall ever shine. Around the supreme throne of him. To whose happy making sight alone. When once our heavenly guided soul shall climb. Then all this earthy grossness quit. Attired with stars, we shall forever sit. Triumphing over death and chance and the time. This is what the writers through the centuries find, by the way. It's this amazing, wonderful, rapturous relationship with God at the end of the road. And that's what he's done for me. Sorry if it rambles a little bit. It's just such a big story. I didn't know how to get it into an hour. Um, and that may be something, that's one of our answers back to these kids. Guys, this is not a philosophy of life. Um, this is, this is a, a testing time, absolutely. Suffering is very painful. Um, but, but let's talk about what God's like and go back to that. So anyway, that's kind of my story. Um, it's there's a lot more stuff, um, but don't be surprised if God gets in your life and says, uh, I got something crazy for you. Um, be open to it. Always go back to scripture. I always, by the way, I checked all these things off with guys like James Stone and Herman Weideman and Kerry Davidson and Mark Brennerman from ACC, and, you know, before I would make these steps. Don't go make crazy steps and jump overseas without having some counsel around you, but be open if the Holy Spirit moves in your life. And it comes to adult thud at the end. <laughs> What's the title? That is John Milton's essay on 